so Jay, how powerful is Nate Gray anyway? Oh, he is really powerful, Miles. He's powerful even by comic book standards. I mean, we're talking about creating his own pocket reality powerful. Eh, that's not that impressive. I mean, Legion's done it. What about uh, materializing a ghost of his mom's clone that turned out to actually be an evil version of his mom from another universe? Impressive, but honestly, also kind of standard Summer's Grey nonsense. Okay, okay, fine. How about this one? He's so powerful that he turned his powers inward and exploded into a network of psychic energy distributed through every living cell on Earth to make the planet's population unsuitable for harvest by an alien race who had been cultivating life on this planet as such for billions of years, but for some reason found Nate himself absolutely unpalatable. What?! I'm Jay Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 297 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and its dark alternate timeline currently, Earth-295, The Age of Apocalypse. And welcome to a weird one, which I realize is a, a relative term, but... X-Man. X-Man is very strange, not least of which because it kept going. This is the only Age of Apocalypse book that kept going past the Age of Apocalypse for quite a while. That kind of makes sense to me. It's one of the few books that really could, not only because Nate survived the Age of Apocalypse, but because it's a single-character-focused title. And you can have a single-character hop universes with a level of narrative ease that you really can't with, say, an entire team or faction. Also, it was 1995, and what we had here was What If Cable, But Edgy Sarcastic Teenager, which is about the most 1995 thing I can think of, especially for the book's target audience, which was people about my age. I think I was about 13 years old at the time. I loved Nate Gray. In retrospect, he's kind of a whiny little shit who I still nonetheless love, but at the time, like, this kid was badass. I mean... I'm just going to put this out here for the musical theater kids and say that on Earth 616, it's probably fair to assume that Pippin is a, the musical Pippin is a thinly veiled allegory for Nate Gray. <laughs> so, like, Pippin in Earth 616 is Dark Beast trying to get Nate Gray to set himself on fire? Yeah, actually, that really works, doesn't it? No, it's probably not Dark Beast. It's, it's, they're probably just all characters in his head. Oh, okay. So we're doing it kind of like uh, some Legion stuff there. Yeah, but you'll note that I pulled in, you know, meta-narrative and, and, and a play that's specifically about a group of players doing something, and we're going to get to why very, very shortly. But let's talk more about, you know, X-Man. So we mentioned briefly that the X-Man series keeps going. Most AOA series got four issues. X-Man got 75. In an interview on SciFi.com with some of the X-Man creators... They we learned that they were really shocked that the series was doing so well, and Steve Scrochi, the artist, talked a bit about that. We quote, uh, We found out near the end of the third issue that X-Men became an ongoing series, but I'm sure that the massive success of the AOA had something to do with it. People wanted more. I think it's still the comic I've done the most consecutive issues of. The hours I put in back then. And yeah, Steve Scrochi, and I assume that's how you say his name? Maybe it's Steve Scrochi? I, I don't know. Sorry, Steve, if so. But anyway, um, yeah, he does a lot of the art on that book, and uh, it's pretty good. 
it's pretty good, but it does definitely also feel like a book being done by a main penciler on a pretty grueling schedule. Uh, yeah, there there is that. So before we jump into the plot itself, I do have to say we've talked about the titles for the various Age of Apocalypse books and X-Man? Okay, maybe this is the worst title for an Age of Apocalypse book. X-Man? Really? So I think it works. And I think it works for one specific reason, and that is the idea of, of a X as a variable, that this is, that Nate Gray is functionally the unknown quantity. Now, obviously that only works for a limited period of time, and it's pretty silly afterwards, but I think they could have leaned into it more effectively and actually let, made, it, made it work better than it does. Actually, in the ongoing after this, uh, there are multiple occasions when he's called X for various reasons. Usually it's like his prisoner number or a serial number or like a file number or something like that. They try so hard to make it work, and it never does. Well, see, that doesn't work because that's just sort of riffing on the title. Making it actually mean something conceptually or using it as not just a motif, but a theme, sort of what I'm talking about. My favorite part, though, is that he actively hates the X-Men for most of his existence, and so the fact that he's called X-Men works even less. He's got some issues. And here are four of them. But before we dive into that, let's talk about what happened first. Now, this story stands mostly apart from the main Age of Apocalypse plot, so we're not going to need to talk much about Professor X or Legion. You can find the general background to the Age of Apocalypse in pretty much any of the preceding episodes that covers it. Now, in the alternate universe of the Age of Apocalypse, the mutant ruling class led by, you guessed it, Apocalypse, mercilessly oppresses both humans and mutants who dare to resist. Within Apocalypse's empire, a respectably large collection of mad scientists experiment on humans and mutants alike, and most of the results are pretty awful. Or, you know, sarcastic teenagers, as the case may be. Oh, I guess there are a couple other background bits that you need to know. Cyclops works for the big bad, but is secretly subverting him. Uh, Jean Grey is kind of a wild card in this. She's former X-Men. Uh, by the end of Factor X, she has left on her own, and she has teamed up with Cyclops in Apocalypse's Citadel, or at least one of them. And speaking of the X-Men, they're led by Magneto in this universe. But they're, you know, over there somewhere. Like, off to the left. So, what's up with the other heroic mutants in this world? Blood, love, and rhetoric. Which brings us to X-Men number one, Breaking Away, written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Steve Scrochi, inked by Sellers, Smith, LaRosa, and Conrad, colored by Mike Thomas, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, Nate Gray is a kid effectively unmoored in reality. His first memory, um, as a teenager, is of Cyclops freeing him from Apocalypse's slave pens. And I love the panel in our issue-starting flashback where Cyclops reaches down because this quote, I mean, let's just say Terminator 2 came out pretty recently. Come with me if you want to live. And I'm pretty sure Nate just follows that up with, you're not my supervisor, because he immediately blows up a wall and runs away, shirtless. Nate Gray, ladies and gentlemen, it just sort of goes from there. Since then, he's basically been raised by Forge, and if you've been reading X-Men in the 616, you're familiar with that Forge. The Forge of the main Marvel Universe is a brilliant but cynical maker and inventor. He cloisters himself away from both politics and people. He and Storm have had an on-and-off very, very intense romance, which he pretty much always screws up in catastrophic ways. He's an interesting guy, but he is not 
someone you would necessarily see as a parent figure. Forge of Earth 295 is very, very different. And awesome. That's right. This Forge runs a traveling theater company slash resistance cell. He's got very, very visible cybernetic prostheses. And I think that's important because the Forge of 616 also has prostheses, but they, they very much blend in with the rest of his body and he keeps them sheathed or gloved. This Forge does not. And I think this Forge's visibility and otherness and kind of vulnerability in light of those make him powerful and make him kind of present in ways that 616 Forge often isn't willing to be. I agree, yeah. Uh, Earth-295 Forge is very much Nate's father figure, and I buy that. He's the father of a very difficult teenager, to be fair, but he's clearly the heart of this theater troupe slash resistance cell. Like, everybody clearly respects and loves him, and you can really see that he's earned that. Well, and he's really connected. He's kind, he's dedicated, he's obviously very close to his fellows and cares deeply about them. And I gotta say, forget Nate. Like, this theater company, Forge and his theater kids, they are what I want stories about. Oh, I completely agree. Like, overall, I like the X-Men miniseries pretty well, but if it had just been about the theater troupe, I would have been way happier. In fact, if all 75 issues of X-Men had just been about the theater troupe, well, except maybe the counteract stuff at the end, because that was kind of cool. But still, overall, that would have been better. Oh man, if the whole theater troupe had survived into the 616. Yeah. So who else is in this uh, group of guerrilla fighters disguised as Shakespearean actors? I'm going to let the narration from the book do the heavy lifting on that one. Toad, whose misshapen form hides a true English scholar. Sauron, the irascible pterodactyl man. Mastermind, the ever-silent illusionist. Brute, as limitless in strength as he is limited in intellect. I love every single one of them, and they are all my favorite. Um, I should note, by the way, that Brute is also going to be Hank McCoy's codename when he shows up in the Mutant X universe a few years after this, and the two characters actually have a lot in common. But this version of Brute is the Age of Apocalypse equivalent of the Morlock Sunder, who was an X-Man for about four pages before the Shadow King-possessed Legion killed him, way back even before the Muir Island saga. And they're great. Every single one of them is great. Let me tell you how different Earth-295 is. I love Mastermind. I know! Mastermind is silent, he's got a big comic booky scar across a half of his head, which presumably is related, and in fact we do find out a little bit about that in a way later issue of X-Man that actually flashes back to before this miniseries, because Nate Great travels in time, it's a whole thing. We do find out in this miniseries that he's got an equivalent um, scar, or at least healed fracture in his skull. Uh, Yeah, yeah, at one point we uh, see a skull. Uh, Spoiler, it goes badly for Mastermind. And indeed, those stitches ran very, very deep. So, except for Forge and Brute, this whole company is villains, or at least least minions, or more minions in, in Toad's case, from the 616. They're so fun here, though, and they're so different, and yet they retain some pretty fundamental aspects of who they are. Yeah, so Sauron, okay, before we go into Sauron, let's talk about the fact that his name is spelled S-O-A-R-O-N, like he soars on and on and on, like that Orbital song, except Sauron instead of Halcyon. Uh, We know that in the 616, he chose the name Sauron from Lord of the Rings because he was super evil, so what the hell here? Oh, I totally assume that this was Toad, because we know that Toad is an English scholar, we know Toad is a huge nerd, and we know Toad likes wordplay in this universe. 
oh, okay, so Sauron was basically dubbed Sauron by Toad, who just snickers and thinks about, you know, the minds of Moria and Baradur and stuff every time he sees his pterodactyl friend? Well, or who actually had a long rationale for it, and Lycos absolutely refused it, but everyone started using it, and now it's just his name and he's stuck with it. Yeah, he also, speaking of being stuck, appears to be stuck as a pterodactyl, or maybe he just likes it. If you could be a pterodactyl, would you not just be a pterodactyl? As long as I could wear some jorts. There you go. Toad in this reminds me a lot of what we've said when we've talked about Quicksilver of Age of Apocalypse. He's a character who, in a universe where his life is worse in a lot of ways, still ends up in specific circumstances that kind of give him the chance to be realized as a character and a person in ways that he never really has the option of in Earth-616. He's an English scholar, like you said. He's erudite, he's witty, he's got people he cares about who care about him. He's great at stage fighting. He has 56 teeth, just like in the main Marvel Universe, and I would die for him. He is a perfect Toad Boy, and he's wonderful. Toad and Forge definitely have a long-running argument about the respective merits of Brecht and Boal, and each is fairly sure that he's winning. These people, they're so great, and we don't get to see very much of them. But speaking of seeing them, let's talk costumes. From that same sci-fi interview, there was another Steve Scrochy quote about Nate's outfit. Um, yeah, and he mentions in that interview specifically that some of his versions of Nate's outfit were specifically in- inspired by the still suits from Dune. And you can see that in Nate's main outfit. Like, it's got a lot of piping and ribbing in the same way that the still suits do. But if you look at the cover to, I'm going to keep coming back to it, the X-Men Collector's Preview, there's an early, early version of Nate Gray, who looks quite different from the one we get here, uh, who has an outfit that is just straight-up Dune David Lynch still suit. The rest of them look like... A Shakespeare company and Road Warrior. I love them so much. Like, everything about the look of these characters is pretty much spot on. In my head, I was describing them as Renfair punk as opposed to, like, steampunk or whatever. They've definitely got some diesel punk, too. I mean, they've, they've got the whole Age of Apocalypse thing, but they've also got Forge as the maker, but Forge as the maker without a lot of access to technology or materials. So you get everything a little bit clunkier, a little more overt. You've got his his prosthetic hands and arms that are, are longer and heavier and and more agile and shaped a little bit differently than than human arms would be. And that seem, again, like they're functional rather than cosmetic prostheses and... God, his whole look is so cool. This forge is best forge. I'm just p- going to put it out there right now. Best forge. Best forge. So the book is X-Man, and X-Man is Nate Gray. So let's talk a little bit about who Nate is and what he's like. All right. Nate is a tremendously powerful telepath and telekinetic. Forge has warned him away from using his powers, afraid of drawing attention or creating disasters. Nate of course, defies this. And as it turns out, Forge's concerns are absolutely reasonable because what Forge doesn't know and what Nate doesn't know is that every time Nate uses his powers, they send up a massive astral flare, which the Shadow King has been tracking. And also he smashes shit and accidentally spies on Magneto. Um, He's inexplicably psychically drawn to the X-Mansion. We'll get to that later. He also talks like he is written by an adult who knows just how the teens talk these days. I was messing around with my head pushing myself in a kind of psionic memory deal, and zrack, I let out this mega TK whack! Oh my god, you know what he talks like? What? 
he talks like the kids in the Generation X live action pilot. Oh my god, you're absolutely correct. Oh, I wish Nate Gray had been there. Later on, he'll be on a team with some of the Generation X members, I I think. Were any of them with the old New Mutants? I guess Blink was. She was kind of a Gen X character. Anyway. Anyway, so the theater company runs around putting on Shakespeare plays and sabotaging railroads, and I love them with all my heart. And I love that where they're doing things like sabotaging railroads, I don't think it ever specifically tells us where they are geographically, but it really seems to be flyover country, like, you know, just away from the hustle and bustle of Apocalypse's obscene monument. Well, they're in Kansas. Um, it does tell us that, which I believe um, is is the official domain of Mikhail Rasputin, the horseman of the Midwest. Oh, okay, gotcha. Well, he doesn't show up here. Also, I God, I just, I really enjoy imagining this group as basically being the players from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, just based on their their sense of meta commentary and awareness, which I guess makes Nate either Hamlet or Alfred, depending on the context. And now that I'm going down that particular rabbit hole, there's also a quote from the lead player there that really makes me think of superhero comics and some of the problems with them, and in fact, of this series. From Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. We're more of the love, blood, and rhetoric school. Well, we can do you blood and love without the rhetoric, and we can do blood and rhetoric without the love, and we can do you all three concurrent or consecutive. But we can't give you love and rhetoric without the blood. Blood is compulsory. They're all blood, you see. I love that place so much. And here, in fact, the blood will come courtesy of Domino, whom Apocalypse sends to hunt down the telepath who's been pinging the Shadow King's radar. Meanwhile, though, the players got a play, by which I mean they are ambushing and derailing a train that is, quote, relocating humans. Nate uses his powers again, and they rescue a young woman whose mutant powers spontaneously manifest, because apparently a lot of mutants' powers are kind of stunted in this universe and and waiting for a, a major narrative moment. And this, as it turns out, is Teresa Cassidy, who for some reason is from Kansas now. Yeah, Siren uh, definitely was in America. She was raised there. But, like, I, I guess that old guy who gets killed when we meet her here is maybe Black Tom Cassidy, and because he didn't have his shillelagh, his life was terrible, and all he could do was die? Well, I'm pretty sure he was supposed to have been a human, so I'm I'm entirely out of left field, or out, or out in left field on this one. Nate is absolutely enamored of this this person, and he insists on bringing her along, but not before he and Forge face off about Nate's persistent use of his powers. Forge, I... Somehow I've got to get you to understand what I did tonight. You may think it was wrong, but it felt good. I helped those people. I made a difference. And I want to do more. Nate, what you did may have looked heroic. It may even have felt heroic. But I have buried too many friends and family in this war to let you commit suicide. Forge is a good dad. I mean, he's holding Nate back, obviously, and we've seen that done poorly in, I don't know, Man of Steel. But I think his heart's in the right place. Yeah, and compare and contrast with Xavier and Magneto's reasons for limiting their students' use of their powers. No, I mean, you're totally right. Forge is just straight up altruistic and protective here. And he's absolutely right, too. But their argument is interrupted by a newcomer who wants to join the group, and this is a former scientist who worked under Apocalypse but has changed sides and gone rogue, and who clearly has gotten disguise tips from Moonstar. Because he introduces himself ever so subtly as 
Essex. And he's also got a red diamond on his forehead. Clearly, Forge's players do not read X-Men comic books, because obviously that's Mr. Sinister. Yeah, unquestionably. Which takes us to X-Men number two, Choosing Sides. This issue is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Steve Scrochi, inked by Mike Sellers, LaRosa Conrad, and Hannah. Uh, they have first names, I'm sure. LaRosa's is Bud, I think. Colored by Mike Thomas and Digital Chameleon, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, Jay, you mentioned that Domino is coming after the group, and she is not alone. She's also with the Age of Apocalypse versions of Grizzly and Caliban. And I think they're just shaking down random targets for information because we first see them attacking freaking Omega Red or the equivalent of him from Age of Apocalypse in hopes of getting info on this mysterious telepath. And Omega Red has no idea what the hell they're talking about, but my real objection with him has nothing to do with information. It has to do with the fact that he is wearing blue. Now, I know he's not actually called Omega Red in this universe, but come on! That's, like, inherent to who he is. He's from Russia, he's a nationalist. Like, what the hell, dude? I'm actually reminded of a Pokémon named Cyndaquil, which is one of the fire starter Pokémon from some generation or another. And, like, you know, the starter Pokémon are supposed to be the iconic ones for that entire element, that entire type. And Cyndaquil is like a blue anteater. Yes, it has red flames coming out of its butt, but why would you have your fire starter Pokémon be blue even if it's got red flames coming out of its butt? I ask you this, Arkady Rosevich, also known as Omega Red. Did you just make all of that up? No, no, that's all true. I've been, I don't really play Pokémon, but I've been playing a lot of Pokémon Go, and Cyndaquil makes me really angry. Huh. Anyway, uh, Grizzly's a serial killer in the Age of Apocalypse. He also briefly was in the main universe when he was brainwashed by uh, Cable's shitty son, Tyler. So, I don't know, maybe Tyler exists in this universe just to brainwash Grizzly. Well, Tyler is adopted, so Cable doesn't need to exist for Tyler to. Well, there you go. Caliban looks a hell of a lot like Toad, and he's similarly erudite. He's really fun. Like, Caliban and Toad are almost identical characters, and therefore I love them both. Now, the troop, meanwhile, is is hanging out doing their thing, and specifically they're all gathered around watching Nate train with Forge. Until Nate snaps, and basically PK thunders Forge the hell over. Okay, so, wait, we're going from Pokemon to Earthbound? What is this, Super Smash Brothers? I mean, kind of. Mainly it's just that I've been playing a lot of video games in quarantine. So Nate and Teresa, who is called Sonique in this universe instead of Siren, which, sure, why not? Is there a Pokemon named Sonique? I don't know. I mean, there's not in Pokemon Go. Maybe later generations. But anyway, uh, Nate and Sonique check in with Essex, who, uh, the way he's drawn, his fancy topknot in his, like, disguise form looks kind of like he's wearing a party hat all the time. Um... But he basically is just playing completely into Nate's sense of being a teenager who can do anything and knows everything, saying, oh, your friends don't see the potential in you. They don't trust you, but I trust you. And also, I trust you so much that I'm going to tell you that you should learn to fly by just trying really hard right now. Okay, go. And Nate does. Nate, this is how you end up doing drugs in a teenager, like, cinematic scare film. I'm not a chicken, you're a sinister turkey. Uh, but yeah, this is one of many, many times in the Age of Apocalypse where an authority figure says, hey, try real hard and you'll spontaneously develop a new superpower, and it totally works. We saw it with Lila, we saw it with Exodus, we're seeing it here with Nate. It makes way more sense with Nate than it does with most of those other characters. 
I guess that's true. But uh, I really like the way Scrochi draws Nate's telekinesis. Um, we usually see it as sort of pink gunk with um, Jean Grey, for instance, or purple with Psylocke. It's this sort of yellow liquid fire that looks very much just like pure power, for lack of a better way of putting it. Like, it doesn't look like a substance so much as the representation of just indescribable psychic strength. And that's really cool. Yeah, it's a really good coloring choice, and I think it gets past, it, it, it sets off enough in the way of, like, semiotics of just this is pure energy to get past some of the silliness of a lot of the representations of telekinesis and psychic energy in comics, or really in any visual medium. Totally. Well, Essex is gaining points with the kids, and he thus gets their support for the next mission that he chooses, which is to go after this apocalypse factory where horrible horrible things have been done specifically we find out this factory has been used to distill human bone marrow into supplements for mutants but like you need uh 100 human corpses for even one gram of this stuff which i'm pretty sure just manifests as little apocalypse flintstone vitamins or something do you think the Flintstones exist in the Age of Apocalypse, or like that there's a specific Apocalypse-flavored variant? No, I mean, I guess they would have already existed by the time Apocalypse rose to power. Okay, so we do have Hanna-Barbera pop culture because that was pre-Apocalypse, but pop culture sort of stopped shortly after that, so maybe the Flintstones are like a really big deal. Maybe this is like uh, that one play, Mr. Burns, where the Simpsons- Mr. Burns, become- I was thinking about that because I was thinking about like the types of plays that this theater troupe would put on. And I want to go back to the theater troupe for a second, actually, not just because I'm obsessed with them, but actually mostly because I'm obsessed with them. (laughs) But also because they're part of a really long and really cool tradition of theater as active political and social resistance, both as a cover for other stuff and as resistance in and of itself. And there's a lot of that. You can find information about a ton of it. I started making a list, but it got so long that I eventually just sort of shrugged and went, there's been a whole, whole lot. And there is a lot. It continues to exist. I I mentioned um, Bertolt Brecht and Augusto Boal earlier when I was riffing about about Forge and Toad, but they're they're good starting points for for searching around some of those traditions and Boal for, for current ones. Yay, the more you know. So, this factory's terrible and it's been terrible, and the Madri are here. You remember all the clones of Jamie Madrox who are sort of scarlet-clad priests? And so the good guys are going to retreat, but Nate's Nate. Yeah, Forge sees the Madri and goes, nope, we are not equipped for this pulling the plug. Nate just sort of blows the place up, but he doesn't really have that good control of his powers. He can do big stuff. He just can't do it very precisely. And so one of the Madri gets away to tell his boss. Unfortunate. That night, though, Nate's not too worried about this. He's just excited about being powerful and having a girl who thinks he's cool. So he and Sonique, Teresa, astrally project to try to figure out why he keeps getting psychically drawn to this mansion, which of course is the X-Mansion, where Magneto is taking care of his Moppet, Charles. Magneto kind of figures out that there's someone there. Charles can see him. I don't know if this is a Charles will manifest powers later thing, or a babies can see psychic projections thing, or both, or neither. But Magneto is is a savvy enough parent and a savvy enough, you know, teacher of mutant kids to recognize that his kid is actually probably looking at something real that he can yell at. And so Sonique breaks the astral projection because she gets freaked out by Magneto being a scary villain-splaining man. And Nate starts to wonder... 
hey, maybe is Essex right? Is Forge just keeping me away from my awesome destiny as a rad teenager? What the hell, Dad? When can I skateboard through the winds of the multiverse? At this point, speaking of Essex, Brute, you know, Sunder, the simple-minded as the book describes him, Morlock, remembers, wait a minute, I've seen this Essex guy before. He was the horrible mad scientist who experimented on me and tortured me a whole lot. And Brute, not being the brightest bulb, goes to confront Essex about this all by himself, and that goes about as you'd expect. Brute gets killed. Yeah, uh, Essex leaves this body in in a barn where it will remain until a bit later. Now, it looks like Forge is about to stumble across the murder scene because he is on his way to give Essex a stern talking to and also fire him from the theater troupe because he has been being a bad influence on Nate. But before he can get there, the bad guys show up. Domino opens with a pop culture reference from the real world because why not? Boys, boys, what you gonna do when the law comes for you? Let's not linger too much on that awkward note, because we're going to go to X-Man number three, Turning Point. It's written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Steve Scrochi, inked by Bud LaRosa and Mike Sellers, colored by Mike Thomas and Digital Chameleon, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And I think that this, this issue effectively answers why Domino opens with this by asking another set of questions. What is evil? Can you touch it? Can you see it? Does it have a taste? Is the narrator trying to get us to lick Mr. Sinister? Because, I mean, okay. I mean, I think what we really know is that evil drops pointless pop culture quotes slightly misphrased. Yeah, that's that's fair, I suppose. Anyway, this segues into an introduction of our villains, whom I think we covered when we were talking about them last issue. Forge telepathically warns Nate to keep away Nate's elsewhere at the time, um, which pretty much guarantees that Nate's going to show up, but this buys Forge and Mastermind some time to come up with another plan, and they decide that since Domino has said that she's there for a telepath, they're going to send Jason. Do you think that just really basic reverse psychology would work on Nate? Do you think Forge could just say, now Nate, I don't want you to be a responsible, cautious young man, and Nate would just go, you can't tell me what to do, and be like a responsible, cautious young man? Oh yeah, he could totally, totally basically pull the on- an ongoing version of the fence painting scam. <laughs> yeah. And man, I really like this version of Mastermind, and again, that's so weird. So Mastermind, who is technically a telepath of sorts, goes goes to Domino and manifests a giant apocalypse uh, to, to yell it at the team, but Domino, being Domino, sees through the scam and vaporizes Jason with a giant gun, except, you know, for his skeleton, which is how we know that the skull actually, or that the scar actually goes through to a skull. I feel like if Mastermind had done something more subtle, like just having had her get a text message from Apocalypse telling her to quit, or I guess it's 95, so I don't know, a a pager message or something, then maybe it would have gone over better. We know what those messages from Apocalypse look like. You'd get a blinking, flaming fist, and then Rusty Collins suing for trademark infringement, and then Apocalypse would show up um, in a a bad CGI video chat. We've seen this. Good point, good point. As Domino is about to kill Forge, Nate swoops into the rescue, and I gotta say, yeah, I, I was thinking about this through the entire series as I was going through, but I've, I've been watching Avatar The Last Airbender again, which I've, I've seen before. My wife hasn't. Um, we've been watching a ton of it, and there is so much here that reminds me so much of that and vice versa, particularly with regards to sort of wild talent and the concept of the Avatar state and of control and just a lot of things. And 
it's really hard to consume any kind of like super powered youth media while watching either of the Avatar series because they just do it so well that most other things pale in comparison. And anyway, my point is, yes, this is good. Um, amazing. Brilliant. Brilliant series. Everyone should watch it. This series, X-Men, is is pretty decent. Um, but yeah, there are parallels. Anyway, Toad and Caliban face off and have an in a different world we might be friends moment before Toad kills Caliban and Grizzly kills Toad. Domino's digging the general carnage because she's so evil, you guys, in this universe, and Nate takes advantage of her distraction to stick her brain in a psychic loop of all the bad stuff she's ever done, and I love the way this is visually represented. Like, there's a picture of Domino, and it's divided into five vertical panels, and in each of those panels at the top, there's a grinning apocalypse head at the top, and the flesh melts off more and more in each one, and as the panels go left to right, as her mind gets more and more screwed up, the panels start to shatter into shards. It's really freaking cool panel layout. So speaking of of the bits of Avatar parallels, um, with the baddies out of the way, Forge and Nate have a really good moment where Nate apologizes for being such a dick and basically says he doesn't really like what his gift does to him when he uses it and the person he becomes around it. And maybe can he wait a little while to take on Apocalypse or save the world? And Forge is super proud of him. Also, I mean, I think I think another factor here is that Forge, as he's drawn in this series, reminds me of Tenzin from Lynched of Korra. Oh yeah, he totally does. Although he th- he's sort of taking the Uncle Iroh role, even though Nate is more Aang than Zuko. I don't know. I, I feel like Nate Nate's got some pretty strong Zuko tendencies. There aren't obvious direct parallels. They just they have the, he has the same beard as Tenzin, is my point. Anyway, it's good that they have that resolution because Forge promptly does head to the barn, finds Brute's body, and gets killed by Essex. And Nate and Forge have a psychic link, which, as we know from Scott and Gene, or in this universe, Gene and Logan, is like a super close, intimate, familial, and or romantic bond. And so Nate sees a whole bunch from Forge's mind as Forge dies. This time, you know, we see his time with Magneto. We see a different version of his romance with Storm, him founding the company, stuff like that. All of these moments. And again, what this leaves me wanting is a story about this Forge. And, you know, this troop and like, that's the story I want. Nate Gray is okay, but God, this forge is so cool. And Nate, like me, is pretty upset about this. Um, Unlike me, Nate literally explodes with grief. Oh, yeah. Yellow psychic energy everywhere. Essex reveals himself as, you know, Forge's killer. This is obvious to Nate, him having psychically seen the whole thing and does his usual sinister speech. Impressive. But then, I would have expected nothing less. Perhaps now, with these distractions out of the way, we can get down to work. Murderer! He was the only one who ever loved me! He cared for me no matter what mistakes I made, and you took that all away! (sighs) If I had known he meant that much to you, I would have killed him sooner. Oh, Sinister. But Sinister being Sinister, he promises Nate answers. And that takes us to X-Man number four, The Art of War. Written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Steve Scrochi, inked by Bud LaRosa, colored by Mike Thomas and Digital Chameleon, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. The Shadow King, or Shadow Thief, whichever he is being at the time, um, in his jar, and I love that he lives in a jar, tells Apocalypse that the assassins have failed and sort of basically does a, does a big told you so, you should have taken him more seriously. Nyeh, nyeh. Enough. Have you forgotten to whom you speak? 
I am the Lord Apocalypse! This planet fears my very existence! And then he zaps everything. But remembering his survival of the fittest philosophy, he chills out a bit and just goes back to torturing Magneto in one of the other series. Meanwhile, Nate is zapping everything because he's angry also. In this case, he is zapping the crap out of Sinister. Sinister being Sinister, though, doesn't really mind. He just kind of cartoonishly reforms his body around the blast. I have no intention of fighting you, Nate. If for no other reason, you might get hurt. And then neither one of us would get what he wants. It's pretty clear, though, Nate is still furious over Forge having been killed by this guy. Understandable. He'd become something of a father figure to you. But Forge only found you. The way people find money. It's good for the person who finds it, and bad for the one who lost it. Perhaps because he's overwhelmed by drowning in this sea of smug, Nate does agree to go into Sinister's head and learn a little bit about his own origins. To learn about the fact that Nate was created scientifically in a lab from the DNA of prelate Scott Summers and prisoner at the time, Gene Gray. Nate is purely genetically engineered. And I gotta say, this seems way easier than all the shenanigans that Earth-616 Sinister went through to make Cable, but, you know, whatever. Earth-616 Sinister doesn't have the same resources that this Sinister does. That's true, yeah. This Sinister basically has the ruler of half the world giving him whatever technology he needs. Sinister, however, lost Nate, because as we saw, Cyclops doing what Cyclops does in this universe and letting basically every significant prisoner out, one at a time, let Nate out. out. And now Sinister's found him. And he tells Nate that, yeah, what everyone's been telling him, that he could take on Apocalypse, is absolutely true. And in fact, that's what he was built for. Liar! I have memories, and dreams, and hopes, and loves. It doesn't matter what you say or how you twist the truth. I'm not anyone's project. And then he TKs up his fists and beats Sinister literally to death. Sinister, for his part, is pretty intrigued by the novelty of actually dying. Which he seems to. I mean, okay, he'll be back in that, quote, Akira Yoshida, unquote, miniseries years later, but yeah, for now, pretty thoroughly dead. That's, that's it for him. Nate, for his part, follows his semi-silink with Magnetophia formed over their accidental late-night psychic visits to Apocalypse's palace in New York, where Magneto is a prisoner at that point. Before he does that, though, he says goodbye to Sauron and Teresa, the only surviving members of the troop, and kisses Teresa passionately, because, sure, why not? They're both young. They're both, you know, excited. He does not kiss Sauron passionately, which is probably for the best for all parties concerned. I really like Sauron in this, too. Like, he is officially the guy whose job is to be the cranky one, but when everyone else is dead, he's kind of sweet. Yeah. Also, he's a pterodactyl. I cannot say enough that he is a pterodactyl. He's, he's a nice pterodactyl, or at least a, a reasonably good-aligned pterodactyl in, in this universe. So, Nate leaves and he punches his way into Apocalypse's Citadel and straight into the final issue of Factor X, 
where the slave pens are, are being called or being wiped out and Cyclops and Jean are trying to break out the prisoners. It's hard to tell for sure, but it seems from the way the panels are drawn, like Scott and Jean enter the room through a giant hole that Nate just knocked in the wall for them. They must have enough X-Factor in them, even in this universe, to be so, so proud of their semi-son for knocking down a wall instead of finding a door. I was gonna say, they see this and they're like, yes, truly, he is our son. And then a lot of things happen in very, very quick succession, the most significant of which is a moment that kind of reminds me of some of the stuff that we saw with Scott and Gene and Cable in the main universe, which is 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 basically a moment of shocking, vague mutual recognition. We know that Nate has seen these guys in Sinister's memories, at least, and that Cyclops remembers freeing him from the pens, but there's a very, very clear realization among all three of them that they're somehow significantly more connected than that, even if they don't specifically know how. As the narration says... It is strange, but in his heart, Nate knows that under different circumstances, these three not only would have been together, they should have been together. But for now, Nate has a date with Apocalypse. So he free climbs Apocalypse's obscene monument to take down the Big A. And that's where we leave off with him on his way to kill the big bad of this entire world. This series, I'm not going to say it's the best AOA series. But it is satisfying, because I think more than a lot of the other ones, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has an arc. The main character like has some personal growth. His journey goes from one point to another very distinctly, and that's kind of cool. The last issue feels very comparatively jumbled and rushed to me, but I may also be judging it especially hard because it doesn't have the theater troupe in it. That is the thing. I mean... It's sort of, okay, bear with me here. So Barb Wire, right? Barb Wire is a comic that was made by Dark Horse way back in the day, and it had a movie adaptation that flopped and was widely mocked with Pamela Anderson in it. And in Barb Wire, now I haven't seen this movie. This is all just things people have told me about it. But in addition to it being a riff on Casablanca, which is a, a bad plan for a, a bad movie to do. <clears throat> overdrawn at the memory bank. <clears throat> overdrawn at the memory bank. Yes, that did it too. Uh, but one of the earlier scenes, as I understand it, in Barb Wire is that there's like a topless shower scene with Pamela Anderson. And then she's fully clad for the rest of the movie. It's like, no, you don't lead with the nudity. You build up to it. Similarly, you don't lead with the awesome theater troupe concept. You build up to it. And so everything seems like a letdown after either a topless shower scene or an awesome theater troupe. Oh, I disagree hard. You lead with the awesome theater troupe, and then you focus on them for the rest of the series. Oh, okay. So beginning, middle, and end. Yes. I mean, I, I haven't actually seen or read any of Barbed Wire, so I don't know how analogous this might be in context. But yeah, I, I just want this to be about the theater troupe. Legit. And I guess Pamela Anderson? Anyway, so that's X-Men. That's X-Men number one through four of 75. And we try to have a focus topic for every Age of Apocalypse episode, and for this, we thought we would talk about the future of Nate Gray. Because boy, is there a lot of it. Let me see if I can sum up the entire X-Men ongoing in one sentence, and then the rest of the character's history in a second. Sentence one. Nate Gray is a contrary jerk who gets in fights with everybody for no reason until he turns into God and then dies. Sentence two. Then he comes back, is boring for a while, and turns into God again. I mean, I would add, is briefly Norman Osborn to the second sentence, because that was a notable bit. Yeah, I guess that doesn't count as boring. But yeah, so most of the X-Men series, up until Warren Ellis takes over toward the end under the Counter-X branding, 
is very much of a kind with this miniseries. It's the same Nate Gray. It's this teenager who is very, very powerful, who's kind of full of himself, but has a good heart, who girls seem to fall in love with for basically no reason all the time, and who gets in trouble and uh, punches a lot of uh, other heroes. My main association with with this comic, X-Men, at least after the Age of Apocalypse stuff, is that at one point I borrowed a random issue of it from Dan in biology class freshman year of high school, and I had no idea what was going on, and I didn't really care because it was something that wasn't my biology textbook. Fair enough. Yeah, I feel like this any issue of that uh, series, if you're not into biology, would be much more exciting than a textbook. I mean, mostly it was just sort of interesting. I did a lot of that. I did a lot of borrowing single out-of-context issues, which was actually kind of a cool intro to comics way. It got me familiar with and kind of literate in the medium before I got, you know, deep into continuity. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's actually really fun. Uh, same thing with me with uh, after-school care and summer camp and stuff. So in the X-Men series, um, a lot of the major characters are female characters who are love interests ambiguously or directly. And we got to lead with this. One of the main love interests of Nate Gray is Madeline Pryor, is the sort of psychic, sort of ghost, it gets way more complicated than that, version of the mom of his 616 equivalent. Oh, it gets worse than that, because it turns out she's actually an evil version of his mom from a different universe. Oh, it gets so complicated. And it's super awkward. And I mean, to the comic's credit, it briefly acknowledges that periodically, but it also acknowledges that, like, Nate is 17, and this lady who had a child who was also kind of him is hooking up with them. I don't know, it's a weird thing. It's much less awkward when he is involved with Threnody for a lot of the series. You may remember Threnody as the homeless woman who sort of absorbed the death energy of people dying of the legacy virus. And she gets a lot more uh, to her. She gets a lot more exploration within this series. And she's actually a pretty cool character. I will give one and only one point to the Maddie stuff. And that is that she features very heavily in one issue of the 12. And it's the only good issue of the 12. Uh, yeah, yeah. I actually remember that one. That was That was pretty good. Yeah, I used to have a wallet that was made out of that issue, or part of a couple pages of that issue laminated, but it wore through after years. Nice. So Nate doesn't like the X-Men for basically stupid reasons, although when he finds out that Professor X turned into Onslaught, I guess that gives him a good reason to add to his stupid reasons. He does, however, eventually connect with the main universe's versions of Cyclops and Jean Grey, and it's really sweet. There's this one scene toward the end where Scott is like, Okay, Nate, I know you don't really trust the X-Men, but there was a period when Gene and I weren't really in the X-Men when we were doing our own thing, and here, I want you to have this. And he gives Nate his old X-Factor uniform, and it's really sweet and nice. Okay, so one of the things that Cyclops consistently does really, really, really well is welcome and low-key parent his alternate universe kids. He does, yeah. And uh, there's actually a really good, uh, a number of really good examples of Scott and Jean as well in X-Man. Like, overall, X-Man's kind of an inessential series in terms of continuity. Like, in the podcast, we'll probably cover the bits that cross over with, uh, with the other X-Books and some of the more interesting stuff. But there are definitely good parts. I mean, I, th I think, you know, Jean, Jean does that stuff too, but I think it's much more complicated with her and has a much higher adjustment curve. While Scott, meanwhile, just looks and goes, oh! 
family. <laughs> yeah, basically. So we mentioned the Counter X thing when Warren Ellis takes the book over. At that point, the series just takes a hard left turn into bizarre, and Nate becomes like this divine dimension-hopping shaman and then sacrifices his life nine-ish issues later. We covered that in the cold open. It's 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 a thing. It's actually kind of a rad issue. It's the, the final issue of the series, but it's it's a lot to drop in a final issue. It is very, very Warren Ellis, and as we know, Warren Ellis and pacing don't always get along, but his ideas are always really good. Nate, of course, comes back after that. Uh, like you said, he was sort of Norman Osborn briefly during Dark Reign. Yeah, he rematerializes at the beginning of, of the Dark X-Men series, or right before the Dark X-Men series, and he is the major, I guess, antagonist of that. After that, he just sort of hangs out with the New Mutants for a long time, and he and Moonstar get into a long-term relationship, and it actually kind of works really well. And then he remakes the entire universe, or at least the mutant parts of it, into a world where no one is allowed to have any kind of intimate personal relationships, romantic, familial, or otherwise, because he's a big weirdo. Yeah, that's Age of X-Man, the recent series, which I'm still not even remotely sold on that premise, but all the miniseries that make it up are really good, so there you go. And, you know, that's all there really is to Nate Gray, I say, lying quite obviously, because there's always more to Nate Gray. Always. There's also always more ambiguity and confusion in the universe, which is why you, listeners, have questions. Richard is good, asks on Tumblr. Why is it whenever we get throwback art of the classic New Mutants, there's almost always one missing? Whether it's Bill Sienkiewicz or Alex Ross, they're typically one short, usually Chan or Doug. Is there an eight hero max on spreads? Does nine protagonists break some law of art design that I don't quite understand? It feels as though the only spread we've ever gotten of the entire gang is the roll call page of X-Men Annual Number 9. I sympathize so hard with this question. In one of the rooms of our house, uh, I have, I think, the Alex Ross poster that you're talking about, which, as I recall, lacks karma. And certainly I've seen the New Mutants without Doug, occasionally without Wolfsbane, but that's mainly because during most of those eras, she's off on a different team. Sometimes without Warlock. Occasionally without Warlock, but why would you not draw Warlock? But I actually looked it up, and weirdly enough, if I'm counting correctly, and I'm sure I'm a little bit off here, but I think there were only 14 total issues of the New Mutants comic, including that special edition when they were in Asgard, with all nine characters actively on the team. Like, for me, that's totally the iconic New Mutants team, those nine characters, absolutely. But yeah, it was kind of a brief run when they were all together, mostly because when Karma was on the team, which was only occasionally, Sunspot usually took that opportunity to quit for a while. You've also got three characters who were on the team for less than half of the series, Karma, Cypher, and Magma. And Cypher also has the downside of having a very superficially similar appearance to Cannonball, who's got a much more interesting to draw power. Yeah, so I think if you're just trying to draw the team looking awesome, I mean, you can totally make Cypher look awesome, but uh, it is harder, to be fair. Sometimes I also see Magma left off, even though she was on the team for almost half the series. She just, I don't think she was ever really as well-developed as most of the other characters. But uh, yeah, it's a little frustrating that even if it was just for 14 issues, we did have this intensely iconic team, and it's so hard to get them all in one place. It's like, I don't know, like running a role-playing game as an adult. <laughs> I imagine that composition is is at least something of a factor as well, though. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, DC has had a lot of success with their DC animated universe, direct-to-video animated films. What X-Men story arcs would you most want to see adapted for direct-to-video animated films? Ooh. 
life death. Mm-hmm. It has to be really Barry Windsor Smith styled, though. Judgment War. Oh my god, Judgment War would be such a good animated movie. Yes, yes, yes. Judgment War, and I'm just picturing the art style of Fantastic Planet. Oh. Bits and pieces of the Whedon Cassidy Astonishing X-Men, Cable and Hope, and, ooh, I would love to see a Curse of the Mutants set that has the short stories either interspersed or between things, and and the big story, I feel like it would make a really, really fun animated series, and you'd also get the different sections and the different art styles, almost um, Animatrix type. Well, that would actually be great. Man, Curse of the Mutants, like, I, I know it's not good, but I love it so much. It's fun, and I really want to see animated Gabriel Hernandez Walta art. Oh god, that would be amazing. For me, I feel like you could do a good God Loves a Man Kills, but you'd have to really do it right. Uh, same thing for Brood Saga. I think an animated movie could really sell that space opera stuff really well. Um, Brood Trouble in the Big Easy. Can you imagine an animated Brood Trouble in the Big Easy? Eh, I guess. Oh, I think it would be great. Uh, I feel like Spurrier's Legion run of X-Men Legacy could also be cool, and, you know, you'd have the added advantage of appealing to fans of the Legion show, even if they would be very confused by the fact that nothing was the same. But then again, if they're fans of the Legion existing TV show, they're used to being very confused. Right. I'm so mad at myself for saying this, but I actually think X-Men Deadly Genesis would make a really good movie if it was done right. I hate that story so much, but it's laid out just like a movie, and it would work, and... Meltdown. Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. Oh man, you would have to have some killer animators on that. They would have to be willing to take it way the fuck out there, but that could be gorgeous. It really could. And I mean, the stories that I'm thinking of are stories that I'm choosing, not just because I think they fit well into the the you know time slot format, but because I think they, th- that they're really well suited to animation if you've got a team that can really run with them. I completely agree, yeah. And that's part of why I was thinking Brood Trouble and the Big Easy, because seeing that in, like, the X-Men 90s animation style, I think could just fit perfectly, just colorful and bombastic and over-the-top. Also, and this is an absolute gimme, the X-Men Power Pack limited series. Oh, yeah, that would be amazing. Why aren't there, like, 5,000 Power Pack cartoons out there? Um, I'm gonna go with Sin and Iniquity. Sin and Iniquity. Well, you know what we like better than Sin and Iniquity? The fact that we get to be a fully listener-supported podcast due to the support of our amazing supporters on Patreon. And certain levels of such support gives people on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So take it away, angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you could handle ultimate power, Jamal Mahone. That you had the resolve, the pluck, the raw talent to accomplish what Mike Cabot could not even with years of systematic and careful labor. As it turned out, the only real difference between the two of you was the methods by which you failed. And on that bright note, the mic goes to everyone's favorite father figure, Mr. Sinister. Yes, Coach. I, Lil Sinislugger, would like to gain access to, I mean, join... Your little league team. Perhaps you could station me next to Tristan Bailey. I believe we would get along quite well. What position do I want to play? Tristan plays second base, so I'll choose a base too. 
so that we can be a base pair. How about my favorite base, Cytosine? Down by the old Milbury stream. Yes, Kristen Galdencio, I am performing a classic tune in hopes of joining your barbershop quartet. It's a pleasure to meet you and your little band, Christian. My name is Mr. Singister. You already have four members, you say? Ah, but you only have one base. And as you know, there are four of those. I'll be... Cytosine. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and New Fairfield, Connecticut in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the Age of Apocalypse widens its lens beyond Marvel's Merry Mutants. In the pages of X-Universe. X-Universe.